So as a mother, I tried to give our children specific options when it came to things like what snacks to eat or what clothes to wear. In other words, it wasn't, what do you want for snack? But would you like some cheese or would you like an apple? Too many possibilities can be overwhelming for a two-year-old or their mother, or frankly, for anyone for that matter. But the problem is that as we get older, there's no one to protect us from having too many decisions to make. What time to get up, whether to take a shower or a bath, should you call your mother or visit a friend, and those are just the choices that typically don't have huge repercussions. The upside is that we as human beings are gifted with rational decision-making abilities. We can choose. The downside is that we are absolutely inundated with decisions every second of every day from every direction. It can be paralyzing and fear-inducing. There's even a name for this kind of phobia. It's called decidophobia, and I did not make that up. It's a real thing. I promise. I recently came across the work of Elkie Reinhuber online. She's an assistant professor in Singapore a specialist in the area of choice and decision-making. She's also an artist and a self-diagnosed decidophobe. Ryan Huber created a panoramic work of art called Decidophobia. It's a 360-degree video installation where you're surrounded by this perfect labyrinth that's projected onto the screen all around you. There's nothing that gives you any clue about orientation. All these paths appear and then disappear on the screen. New possibilities fade into missed opportunities. The whole time an audio tape plays, it's these simulated voices of people passing by. Overlapping dialogues in several different languages fade in and out, saying things like, what path should we choose? Shouldn't we rather go back? Where does this path go? They are like fragmented conversations that become audible briefly, only to then fade away, once again giving the impression of missed chances and missed answers. Trust me, you can kind of do this online, and it's enough to make anyone anxious and decidophobic. I think that in some ways reading the Gospel of Mark is like being in Elke Reinhuber's art installation, Decidophobia. More than any of the other Gospels, the Gospel of Mark has a momentum that propels the reader forward. Action follows action with rapidity. The Greek word translated as immediately or straight away occurs at least 40 times in the Gospel of Mark, and it creates this sense of urgency throughout. We see it twice in today's reading alone. Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee and sees Simon and Andrew casting their net, and he calls out to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately, Mark tells us, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus then sees James and John in the boat with their father Zebedee. Immediately, Jesus calls to them, and they leave not only their nets, but their father too. No time to tell their mother goodbye, or to pack a bag, or to sleep on this big decision overnight or to ask if there's a training course for new disciples. What we sense is that there is this window of opportunity, a brief moment before the path that is now open to them fades away. 
It's a moment that no matter what they decide will leave them forever changed. It's a moment bound to delineate a before and after in the narrative of their own lives. A borderline decidophobe like me gets anxious just hearing today's gospel. But truth be told, this is precisely how the gospel usually confronts us in our lives. Suddenly, unpredictably, unexpectedly, hinting at missed opportunities if we pass it by, threatening to change everything if we take the path that offers us. And when the gospel shows up, like Jesus did that day at the Sea of Galilee, it demands a response. We can ignore it, we can refuse it, we can act on it, or we can stand undecided until the moment passes. But in the end, whatever we do or don't do is a response. Such gospel opportunities can come at inconvenient times. Someone comes to church in search of food five minutes before a service is scheduled to start. They can come when we are feeling our least Christian selves. Like when a person whips into the checkout line right in front of you with her cart full of groceries and then ends up being a few dollars short or needing at least one or two price checks. Gospel opportunities can be one-time events, like the man I met dying from AIDS on his way from Maryland to California. Or they can be repeat occasions, like our established food pantry clients. Gospel moments can come with a cost. It did for the Reverend George Lee, a black minister in Mississippi who in 1955 was killed because he encouraged voter registration in his county. And of course, we see in today's reading from Mark that it begins with the news of John's arrest. But gospel possibilities can also be completely full of joy. The smile of a friend, a hand on the arm of someone who's ill, or a prayer of encouragement. Here's the thing. Such opportunities are not just the living out of our faith. They are our faith. Faith isn't some abstract concept, a set of ideas or attitudes or beliefs. And the concrete aspects of our faith aren't confined to the recitation of creeds, foundational though those creeds may be, or the singing of hymns, beautiful though they may be, or the quiet stillness of meditation, necessary as that may be. Instead, our faith comes into being moment by moment, call by call, decision by decision, thousands upon thousands of them, changing who we are with each response, no matter how great or how small. So how is it that we can respond like Simon and Andrew, like James and John, with that wholehearted yes to the call of a given moment? Well, I think it's significant that before he calls his disciples, Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God has come near. First and foremost, it is God who has already drawn near to us before we can ever draw near to God. It is God already at work in us that enables us to answer the call of the gospel in our own lives. We trust that God is in the call itself. We also trust that the prayers we say week after week, the songs we sing, the scriptures we hear, the very movement of our bodies in worship, we trust that all of this will shape our hearts and open them to say yes when Jesus does suddenly appear, saying, follow me. Now, might it be costly to respond to the gospel with such abandon? Absolutely. 
But being part of a community like this one that shares the cost of discipleship with one another, that can help us take risks that we would never dream of taking on our own. And what if we make the wrong decision in a given moment? Now that is the true fear of all decidophobes. We are bound at times to respond to gospel opportunities in a way which might not have been the best option given to us. We are bound to make mistakes. But week after week we come to the altar rail. We offer up our lives, the good, the broken, our successes, our failures in judgment, or our failures to follow through. And then we receive our lives back in the bread and in the wine, redeemed, transformed, brimming with possibilities once again, call after call ahead of us, second chance after second chance. If we have any doubt that grace like that exists for us, just look at Simon Peter. He may have immediately left his net when Jesus called him, but the Gospels tell us his journey of faith ended up being pretty rocky at times. The strong fate that made Peter step out of the boat and walk toward Jesus on water faltered when a strong wind arose and he began to sink. On the night Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, saying, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me, it was Simon Peter who then exclaimed, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. But that same passion would cause him later that night to draw a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. It was Peter who once confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But that same Peter, warming himself in the courtyard of the high priest's residence the night before Jesus' crucifixion, that same Peter denied even knowing Jesus. But despite Peter's very human failings, despite his missteps and his need to start over and over again, Jesus never ceased to call him deeper and deeper into a life of ministry. In the last conversation between Peter and Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of Peter, do you love me? It's a chance at redemption for every time Peter had denied him. Jesus ends that conversation with the commission, Feed my sheep. And only a few short weeks later, it was Peter who at Pentecost stood and boldly proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. What grace that is. It's precisely that kind of grace that gives us the freedom to respond in the moment. We don't have to be paralyzed when confronted with a call to follow Jesus. So when a gospel path opens up this week, take it. It may be inconvenient, it may be time-consuming, and it may be costly in much greater ways than this, too. We may not respond perfectly. In fact, I bet we won't. And most likely the results will not be at all what we expected. But one thing is for sure. It will be life-giving.